How do I get up there? How do I get up there? Right there. Stay here. Okay. Good. Morning. This is quite an experiment this morning. Uh, I don't know how long I'm going to um, last without a chair, but um, Randy's right there, so he'll have one ready for me in case I'm ready to pass out up here. Thank you so much for your prayers over the past seven, eight months or so. Uh, it's been a tough uh, go with the brain surgery that I had. It didn't go well. <clears throat> Things that went wrong should, that shouldn't have gone wrong uh, went wrong anyhow. So I'm still learning how to walk, uh, still learning how to balance myself. Now they're working on my eyes because my eyes do this. They never did this before. They always did this before. <laughs> for those of you who are old enough to remember that. Uh, so I'm in therapy for that, trying to learn how to balance myself. I've lost my hearing in my left ear for the most part. And uh, of course the dizziness, the inability to walk in a straight line, I always look like I'm drunk, even though I never have been. So um, <clears throat> thank you for your prayers. I hope you'll continue to pray uh, that the recovery will go well and that I'd be able to regain the strength that I once had. Um, I don't take those things for granted anymore, you know, just walking in a straight line. Uh, it's important for us to take those little things that we forget to thank God for every day and learn to thank Him for those things. So I have two pieces of scripture I want you to look at with me this morning. One is in Psalm 98. So I'm going to need you to turn to Psalm 98. And I'm going to need you to put a finger over in Luke chapter 1. Psalm 98, Luke chapter 1. I've entitled this message, The Greatest Hymn Ever Written by the Greatest Woman Who Ever Lived. And um, you guys might think that your wife is the greatest woman who ever lived. And you, for you, that's probably true. Um, but the greatest woman who ever lived, obviously, is the one who bore the Christ child. She was blessed among women. As uh, we'll learn in the great Magnificat, the great song that she either said or sung. It doesn't tell us specifically whether she said it or sung it. But either way, it's a song. And it's a psalm that's based on Psalm 98. So this young teenage girl knew her scriptures. She knew Psalm 98. In fact, uh, the Magnificat, as it's called in Luke chapter 1, is patterned after Psalm 98. So she had that in mind when she was uh, saying those things or singing those things when she was visiting with Elizabeth who was six months pregnant with uh, John the Baptizer. Now, most of the hymns that we sing at Christmas time were not designed to be sung only at Christmas. I don't know if you realize that or not, but they were designed to declare the central truth of the Christian faith. That is, God became man, the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, the Son of God incarnate. And all the names and the attributes ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament 
can only fit one person. The infinite God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So these hymns were designed to bring that message home to us, not just to celebrate Christmas time, but to declare who Jesus Christ is. Whenever you sing Joy to the Lord, that is a hymn that was never designed to be sung only at Christmas time. That is a hymn about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at the New Testament, you look at all of the various books of the New Testament, there is a truth that forms an introduction to the four Gospels. When you read the introduction to all four Gospels, they are focusing on the very same thing. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God became man. The Lord became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Matthew and Luke's genealogies. They differ slightly, but they're designed to show that he is not only the son of David, but that he is the Messiah. And so from the perspective of Mary and the perspective of Joseph, the genealogies of Jesus merge into that one important fact that this is the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy. The virgin birth, the story of how this child came to be, where the wall between heaven and earth is broken down. There we read in Luke and Matthew, we read in those Gospels uh, songs of angels and shepherds and dreams and warnings of flight and death, of joy and pain. We have wise men, we have stars, we have all of heaven and the heavens declaring something is happening here on earth. So that barrier between heaven and earth comes ripped down as you study these stories. Now Mark's gospel is interesting because it skips all of that glitter and takes us right to the heart of prophetic fulfillment. That is, it begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what is he crying? He is crying that the Messiah has come. That we are to repent of our sins. That uh, he is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they all say the same. Now, when you go to the book of Acts, and uh, how does the book of Acts start? It starts with the ascension of Jesus. They're all looking up. The same Jesus which you see being taken from you will come again in like manner. Just as you see him go, he's going to come. So it begins and it ends with a story. And that story in between is all about the gospel, the good news. God has given us a savior. Uh, when you look at Romans, Romans, he's the seed of David. All the way through, the seed of David, the fulfillment of prophecy. First Corinthians, he's the Lord of his church in every place. In every place, every, every generation, he, Christ, is the Lord of the church. Second Corinthians It is Christ who is the God of all mercy and all justice. Galatians, he's our deliverer. Ephesians, he's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a plan and a purpose. Ephesians chapter 1, you read of that trinity. The Father did this, the Son did this, the Holy Spirit does that. God ordained his people. Jesus died for his people. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation to individuals like you and me. That's what Ephesians is about. 
Philippians, the one who began a good work in you will what? He will finish it. He will complete it. He will bring it to completion for the day of the Lord. And Colossians, all the way through the book of Colossians, Jesus is our redeemer. And you can read these, all of these books. You go to 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, where he is declared the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Timothy calls him our savior and our hope. Uh, the promise of life. This is a message all the way through the New Testament. This is a message about a person. About the gospel. About the good news. About what brings you here to church today. It's about what shapes your identity as a Christian. We go to the book of Revelation. What do we find there? It's the story of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, all of this begins with the fulfillment of a prophecy. If you, if you have Psalm 98, you look with me. At, at the, these titles are also important as well. They're kind of like footnotes that the author puts on. Like, for example, in Psalm 9, which I'll quote in just a moment, it was a psalm written by David after his son died. All of these psalms have titles, except for one, this one. Psalm 98 is simply called what? A psalm. Just a psalm. We don't know the occasion, but we do know it's what is called a messianic psalm. That is, it speaks of the coming of Messiah. And if you look at the first three verses, I'm going to read them to you. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. When you go over to Luke chapter 1, don't do that yet. But when we go over to Luke chapter 1 and we read Mary's Magnificat, we read that song, song that she sang. It's patterned after the three stanzas of this song. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. Underline those words, has done. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Six times in those first three verses, he uses language, he uses a, a verbiage that basically says that God has done something. But the translations minimize the real translation here. Every one of those six times where he says God has done something is in what we call a perfect tense, which means he's done it, he's doing it, and he will do it. So when it says there that he has done marvelous things, he's done them in the past, he's doing them now, he'll do them in the future. This is a psalm that generally gives us a prophecy rooted in what God has done, is doing, and will do of the coming of Messiah. That's why we call it a messianic psalm. This speaks prophesies of the coming of Messiah. That's why when Mary sings her song, when she sings the Magnificat, she knows she's carrying that Messiah. She knows that Psalm 98 is being fulfilled inside of her body. She's standing there and she's talking to Elizabeth. 
And the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Why is that so significant? Why is that so important? Because now this teenage girl, imagine she's probably 14, 15 years old. She knows her scriptures. She's scared. There's no minimizing how frightful it must have been for her to be labeled as an adulteress. That's how they viewed her. That's how they viewed this teenage girl. You broke your vows. You vowed yourself to purity to marry this man, Joseph. But you broke your vows. You had sex with him. That's why you're pregnant. And in that society, they didn't celebrate the way we celebrate today. Girl gets pregnant today in this culture, it's no big deal anymore. Might be for her, might be for her family, but it's no big deal. We celebrate it. That's cute, you're having a baby. In that culture, you lost your identity. You lost your right to, the, to, to, your, to your community. You lost the right to your family. You were ostracized. You were thrown out. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. What I am saying is that it is the real thing that this girl was facing. But you know, ever since she was a little girl, she filled her mind with truth. She studied the scriptures. She had the word of God implanted in her heart. And so when she needed those little kegs of spiritual dynamite that had been planted in her for all those years, as she was memorizing and meditating upon scripture, as she was doing that, at the precise moment she needed it the most, they exploded inside of her. But she needed more. I'd like a little proof of this. So she goes to visit Elizabeth, who was also experiencing her own personal miracle. And she's pregnant as well. Her husband has been struck deaf because he didn't believe the miracle. And now when she enters the room, when Mary enters the, the room, the baby inside of Elizabeth, John, the baptizer, he leaps for joy. Now you'll notice in the scriptures, it's not called a fetus. It's called a baby. A baby with feelings. Because he didn't just leap, he leaped for joy. Now many scholars, myself included, believe that that's when John the Baptist was saved. That's when the Holy Spirit entered John the Baptist in utero. And so we have this scene with these two women coming together. And Mary now is frightened. But Elizabeth explains to her, when you walked into the room, the baby leaped. Now most of you would look at that and you would say, well, babies move at six months. You can feel them at six months. You can feel them some even earlier than that. Of course that's true. But the baby leaped for joy. For joy. Maybe this was God's way of saying to Mary, you know what? I got your back. I've got your back. 
And so all of those scriptures that she memorized as a child, all of those verses, that messianic promise, uh, prophecy of, of Psalm 98 just came out of her, just popped out of her at that moment. And what's the first thing she says? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Just parenthetically, Mary needed a Savior. Because Mary also was a sinner. And so she just parrots back what she already knew to be true. You know, when we're facing fear, when we're facing faithlessness, when we're having trouble believing, we always have to go back to something. And that's what is the truth of Scripture? What does the Word of God actually teach? What do I know to be true? It's not more faith that we need. We just need a little bit of faith. What we really need is to be driven by what actually ignites our faith. And that's the truth of Scripture. So here she is. We have the birth of a... I mean, when you start, you stop think about some of the hymns that were ever written. Some of the best hymns, best music that was ever written. You know, we still sing the hymns of Isaac Watts, probably the greatest hymn writer who ever lived. But Isaac Watts was a brilliant young man. While still in his teens, Isaac Watts didn't like the music in the church. You know, we think our generation is the first generation that has music wars in the church. Some of the songs that were sung this morning, some of you really liked. Some of the songs that were sung this morning, some of you didn't like. We go week in, we go week in and week out and we sing our songs, we sing our hymns. Some of them are really great. Some of them, well, we could do without. You know, it's interesting. After we lost our son Mark back in 1993, one of the first hymns that was sung in the church after we returned was I Surrender All. And I remember thinking, I can't sing that. Because right now, I just, I'm not willing to surrender the fact that my son is gone. Not willing to do that. In fact, I, was, I started, as I'm sitting there in the front row of the church, I'm starting to judge everybody. I was saying, thinking, do people know what you're singing? I surrender all? Do you really surrender all? How can you sing a song that you know you're not going to believe the moment you leave the church? I surrender all. Well, Isaac Watts was the kind of a kid. He came to church every week, and he didn't like the music. And you know, when I listen to some of the music that was prevalent in his day, when I read some of the music... It's no wonder. At least from our perspective, it might have been great for them, might have had sound doctrine, might have been, but, but he didn't like it. So his father, tired of him saying that every day uh, after church, coming home after church, his father, tired of him complaining and moaning and groaning about the music in the church. And he said, well, why don't you just, my paraphrase now, shut your mouth and do something about it. Aren't you glad his father did that? Aren't you glad his father said that to him? You know, let me tell you something about Isaac Watts. 
at five years old, now you think of a five-year-old, at five years of age, he began to show a God-given genius and that genius led to him what, to becoming one of the key historic figures of the Christian faith. He learned Latin at five. He learned Greek at nine. He learned French at 11. He learned Hebrew at 13. Anybody here as smart as him at 13? In addition to his 600 hymns and scores of hymn collections, he was astute at theology. He was astute at philosophy. When I was in college, I, I used to hate those philosophy majors. Those guys gave me a headache just talking to them because they're so logical and smart. He wrote many works during the 17th and early 18th centuries that profoundly impacted English thinking, English theology. When he was seven, I want you to think of a seven-year-old. When Isaac Watts was seven years old, he wrote an acrostic using his name, Isaac Watts, I-S-A-A-C-W-A-T-T-S. And this is the acrostic. Listen to this theology. I, I am a vile, polluted lump of earth. S, so I have continued since my birth. A, although Jehovah grace doth daily give me. A, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me. C, come therefore Lord from Satan's claws relieve me. W, wash me in thy blood O Christ. A, and grace divine impart. T, he's seven. He's seven. Then search and try the corners of my heart. T, that I in all things may be fit to do. S, service to thee and thy praise too. That's good theology. You know, we read in seminary, we read all these thick books, you know, and all this stuff about uh, systematic theology. There it is in the seven-year-old. He's got it down. Watts accepted the challenge of his dad and he wrote every week a new hymn for his church. Every week. He published 210 of these hymns in 1707 in a book entitled Hymns and Spiritual Songs. This hymnal and another that would be published uh, eight years later in 1719 significantly shaped English hymnody. They were the first real hymnals ever written in English, coming from the pen of a 13-year-old. His philosophy of hymnody goes like this, and I'm quoting him now. He says, while we sing the praises of God in his church, we are employed in that part of worship, which of all others is the nearest akin to heaven, and tis a pity that this of all others should be performed the worst on earth. <laughs> that very action should, which should elevate us to the most delightful and divine sensations doth not only flat our devotion, but too often awakes our regret and touches all the springs of uneasiness within us. Do your kids talk that way? I know mine never talk that way. 
They still don't talk that way. I mean, this, this guy has his theology together. He was a radical in his day. He was only five feet tall, homely looking, gentle mannered. We would call him a dork. That's the language we would use to describe the greatest hymn writer who ever walked the face of the earth. He had some contemporaries too, a guy named Handel. You know what he did. George Frederick Handel. He was a robust, hot-tempered, big city German. He was the master of the keyboard. He wrote operas and oratorios. They lived, both of them lived as adults in London. They knew each other. Handel's Messiah was written in 24 days and was first performed in April 13th of 1742. Have you ever seen the score for Handel's Messiah? 24 days he wrote that. When we go to Psalm 98 and verse 1, you're, you're catapulting yourself back to another great hymn writer. You're, you're catapulting yourself back to someone who wrote something simply called a psalm of what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do for all eternity. In Psalm, Psalm 98.1 it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. What's new about it? He says, sing a new song. In the old song, he is going to come. In Mary's Magnificat, he is going to come. The song you and I sing today is, he has come. The song you and I will sing in the future is, he will come. He has, he is, he will come. My soul magnifies the Lord. Luke 1.46 is where Mary starts her song. My, that's where we get the word magnificat from. It's a Latin word that means magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is the hymn called the Magnificat. The parallels are striking. We praise God because what he promises he accomplishes. That's what makes this a new song. Because when Messiah is prophesied to come, it becomes a new song when he has come. We sit on this side of the cross, don't we? We're not over here in the old looking forward to the cross. We're in the new looking back to what he already has accomplished, to what he has done. It doesn't mean new of a of a different kind, but it means new of the same kind. We praise him because of what he promises. It's a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song, not a different song. New does not, that word does not mean new of a different kind. It means new of the same kind. What we have looked forward to has come. Now we're not always to sing old songs. Whenever we sing in church, the songs you sang this morning, the music that you elevated to the Lord this morning, hearing the person next to you and behind you and in front of you, no matter how bad they sound, they're singing a new song. Not new of a different kind, but new of the same kind. We live in hope deferred. That's where we are right now. 
but we sing with hope realized. We're not just waiting for something. We know it's coming, but it already has come to us, if you know Christ this morning. We live in disease, but we sing in healing. You know, these bodies are collapsing. They're, you know, they're microscopic, tiny little nerves that were not supposed to be touched in me. But when they drilled the hole in the back of my head and went in there, <laughs> the nerve he hit was not the nerve he was supposed to hit because they're so microscopic. But you know, I have a feeling that even those kinds of things happen with age anyhow. As our bodies age, it's, it's telling us something. As we have disease, you know, we have a nephew who, this is what he does, music. This is what he does. He's in his 40s. Very talented young man. Very talented. He has children, one of them in college. His wife loves the Lord. They sing in there. They, he produced a play, a dramatic musical. A dream of his. And, and the night before, roughly the night before he's supposed to perform that play, he goes to the doctor and finds out he has an inoperable brain tumor. They're giving him weeks to live. It's not supposed to happen to a 40-year-old. But some of you know it does. Some of you have experienced those kinds of tragedies in your own family. And you know, you watch stuff like that and you say, Lord, why are you allowing these kinds of things to happen to people who really want to serve you? And God is reminding us of Psalm 98. This is what I have done. This is what I'm doing. And now hold on to this. This is what I'm going to do. We don't know why. We may never know in this life why. But we're in where we stand in eternity and we look back, we'll be able to see God was building this beautiful mosaic, this beautiful masterpiece all along. And that's what faith does. Faith rests itself on the truth of God's word. You know, we, we tend to ask for more faith. We want more faith, more faith, more faith. You don't need more faith. What you need is more truth. Because it's truth, it's the truth of scripture that really kindles and drives your faith. This is what Mary's going through. We tend to look at this, you know, as, oh, this was so pretty. This was, she had snow, she had, you know, uh, donkeys traveling from here to there, and, you know, oh yeah, we know there was no room for them in the end, but these shepherds were, were being told, and the angels were singing, and, and, and we look at Christmas, and the, she was scared to death. She was frightened beyond any concept you and I could think of because her whole life hinged on her identity to her family and to her friends. But what drove her was her commitment to the scriptures. You know, we're not told to sing a new song in a different way. We live in that hope deferred, but we, we live with, you know, the significance of, of hope that's realized. We're in the already but the not yet. We're already in heaven. Did you know that? If you know Christ, you're already there. 
but not yet. Theologically, you're already sanctified. Now take a look around at the person next to you. They don't look very sanctified. From my angle up here, you don't look very sanctified. And I'm sure from your angle, I don't look very sanctified. When you know what my life is like and what your life is like and what we do in secret and what we do that's not so public for everybody to see, we're certainly not sanctified, are we? But we are. You know, when we're told that, um, that we are already glorified, that it's a present verb in Romans chapter 8, that whom God predestined, he also chose those whom he chose, he also sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. It's all present verbs. Or I'm sorry, aorist verbs. They're all past action. It's already a point action already done. You're glorified. I know you don't feel it. I know your body's saying it isn't. But the truth is, you already are. It's a done deal. That's why nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We live in sin, but we sing in forgiveness, don't we? We live in doubt, but we sing in certainty. We live in grief, but we sing in reunion. We live in sorrow, but we sing in joy. We live in famine, but we sing at a banquet. I hope you view your hymns differently from now on. We live in pain, but we sing in balm. We live in hate, but we sing in love. Why? Because God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. Everything that he said would be fulfilled in his son completely. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We praise him. Look at Psalm 98 again. We praise him because he has done marvelous things in verse 1. We, he has done marvelous things. That, that's an interesting word there. It means great things. It means wondrous things. Psalm 9, 1, the verse I quoted earlier on the death of his son, David said, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. There's that word again. The messianic prophecy of Psalm or Isaiah 9, 6, which you have on, on most of your Christmas cards. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. Wonder of all wonders. That's what that word means. All the things you look at that are so wonderful. Look at the miracle of creation. Look around at creation. The beauty of creation. Look at the, the way the stars are placed in their orbits. And look at the moon and the sun. You know, we get on Facebook and everybody's saying, oh, you're going to see the huge moon tonight. Everybody goes outside. We want to see the, 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 uh, the stars falling from the sky. We want to see the, the, the meteors and the things that, come, that happen every 100 years or 150 years or 200 years. Why? Because we're awed at creation. 
You think about creation and the miracle of creation. That's wonderful. We look at that. We read the story of the splitting of the Red Sea. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine having been there at the Red Sea? Would you have walked in the water? The leaders of the church were called upon to go first. The water hadn't been split yet. Go walk into the water. Leaders have people who follow them. So leaders walk into the water. Watch what God's going to do. Would you have walked into the water at the Red Sea? What would you have done had you been holding the baskets with the feeding of the 5,000? As you're going around, your, your basket's going empty, and then all of a sudden it's full again. How'd that happen? Who did that? Who dropped that in here? And you do it some more and some more and some more, and then you have baskets left over. That's wonder of wonders. What would you have thought of had you been there at the raising of Lazarus from the dead? When Jesus comes purposely late, purposely late, so that his body is stinking by now. I remember in Philadelphia when we, um, we wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we wanted to illustrate it to the kids. And we had all these African-American kids. We had two, three hundred kids that had come on buses to come and watch Lazarus being raised from the dead. And we had our poor junior high Sunday school teacher. Because he was going to be Lazarus. And we wrapped him in cloths and we smeared his body with Limburger cheese. He stunk to high heaven. And we brought, we played, somebody played the role of Jesus and yelled with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. All you can see with the white of the eyes of these kids. All you can see with the white of their eyes. Now the older people in the church didn't like that too much. Because we were doing something outside the box. You know, you don't do things outside the box. But imagine, would, imagine you being there. I mean, even when we were playing that little role play thing in Philadelphia, it gave me the chills. Just to think, what must it have been, been like to actually stand? Now, that's a wonderful thing. That's a miracle. But the wonder of wonders, the virgin birth, the miraculous works of Jesus, the resurrection. Imagine being one of those guards at the tomb. You imagine being there on guard at the tomb when the rock is rolled away. The rock was rolled away not to let Jesus out. He was already gone. The stone was rolled away to let us in, to see that he's gone. There's the miracle. Wonder of wonders. What would it, what would it have been like to be there at the ascension? You're standing there and you're watching as Christ is being taken. Then there's two angels that stand there and say, quit gawking up into the sky. He's coming back. Go do what you've been called to do. What's it going to be like when he does come? Where will you be? What will you be doing? Where will you be standing? Who will you be standing with? 
Will you be driving your car? Will you be at the Army-Navy game like we were yesterday? Where will you be? What will you be doing? What will go through your mind when all of a sudden the graves are opened? Because that's what's going to happen first. The graves will be opened and the dead in Christ will rise first. What has gone before will come down and they will meet the Lord in the air. And then you and I, if we're still up, if we're still, if we're still uh, here, we will be taken up to... Where will you be? When we start talking about wonderful counselor, the wonder of wonders, this is what Mary's talking about. This is what she's saying when she says great things, marvelous things. What, who is, he who is mighty has done great things for me, is doing, will do, will continue to do. Holy is his name. That's coming out of a 14, 15-year-old girl's lips. The wonder of wonders that far exceeds any of those other wonders that we just spoke of. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, creation... The wonder of wonders is that you're sitting here saved. If you know Christ. That's the wonder of wonders. The miracle, the greatest miracle you have ever witnessed is when you became a Christian. There's nothing greater. Now you may not feel like that was a great miracle. You'd, you'd rather have your cancer taken away. I'd rather have my dizziness taken away. I'd rather my nephew doesn't have that brain tumor. But I want to tell you, I don't know how Scott would live not knowing for sure where he's going. How does anybody live that way? Psalm 98 verse 1 says, His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Mary says in Luke 151, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. There's the same language. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Isaiah 52 says, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. The ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 59, 16 says, he saw that there was no one. Listen, no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. That's a messianic prophecy. There was no one who could save you. Muhammad can't save you. Buddha can't save you. Joseph Smith cannot save you. The church cannot save you. The preacher cannot save you. Your parents cannot save you. You're all alone. There is no one to be found anywhere, Isaiah is saying, who can save you. There is no one anywhere who can save you. But, so, or therefore, his own arm worked salvation. And his own righteousness sustained. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Messiah. He's talking about the same one that Mary's singing about. He's talking about the holy, uh, the same one who, uh, in the presence of Jesus, the baby in her womb leaped for joy. This is Christ. There's no other way of salvation. 
We live in this culture in which everybody wants to believe that no matter what you believe, you're going to heaven. Is that true? I mean, if it's true, how do we explain the cross? Why have a cross? If all you got to do is do your own thing, just be a good dad, be a good mom, be a, go to church, sing, play an instrument, do, do whatever Randy does and people like that. Do, do what I do, stand up and preach. Does that save you? Is that sufficient to save you? And the answer to that, of course, is no. What does all this mean? Christ alone saves. He died alone. There is no salvation apart from the work of the cross. And I just got to ask you just one very simple question. Aren't you glad that your salvation does not depend on you? You really want to weigh your good works against your bad? I challenge you to do that. Put the scales up, scales of justice. Everything you've done bad, everything you've done good, weigh them. You say, well, you know, I think they come out pretty even, really. Every evil thought, every evil word, everything you've ever listened to that was wrong, everything you've ever done that was wrong, everything you ever thought in your heart to be right that ended up being wrong, you go ahead and trust those scales. That's why Matthew 5.48 says, here's the standard. If you want to go to heaven, here's the standard. Be therefore perfect, just like your heavenly Father is perfect. Go ahead. Try that one on for size. Psalm 98 verse 2 says, The Lord has made his salvation known, revealed his righteousness to the nations. He remembered his love and his faithfulness to the God of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Psalm 98. Go over to Luke 1, look at verse 50. This is Mary singing. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as, even as he said to our fathers. She's singing a song. But she's thinking Psalm 98. Or maybe it's Isaiah 49. But I said I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands. And my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says. He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. To bring Jacob back to him. And gather Israel for himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has been my strength. For he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Who is he talking about? This is what the Lord says, verse 7. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations to the servants and rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is 750 years before Jesus ever came. This is the prophecy, looking down into that, into that 15, 14-year-old woman's womb, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold. All that Abraham and Jacob and Isaac ever lived for. 
is being fulfilled in that woman. Fulfilled in her body. All the ends of the earth have seen, the psalm says. It implies faith, believing what God says he will do, ignited by the knowledge to express love. It's the truth. And it's the truth we must sing. You know, for many, the coming of Christ is not good news, it's bad news. You know, those Christmas cards that you have, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Scripture never, never says that. Never teaches that. It says peace on earth and goodwill to all those on whom his favor rests. So for those of us who know Christ, that's good news. For those who don't know Christ, that's bad news. Because his favor does not rest on those who do not know him. This is what saves, friends, faith that is ignited by the knowledge of the Holy One so that we might love him, so that we might trust him. And then Psalm 98 stands at two. How is God to be praised? Verses four through six, we are to praise him outwardly as the result of what we have experienced inwardly. That's why you're here. Psalm 98.4, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Doesn't sound like you're to do this quietly. I remember when we were in Africa, the Ivory Coast, a coup was underway. And um, we're sitting there about, I don't know, 11.45 on our first day. Um, I'm going to be training, I think there are about 15 African pastors on their roles as pastors. Uh, I would speak in English and the missionary would translate in French and if necessary in Julu from that. And we're sitting there first day and you know, I'm kind of like a deer caught in the headlights. I'm looking around, it's a hundred and some degrees and there's no air conditioning. And we're basically sitting outside, we're listening to gunfire. And we know a coup's underway. And um, all of a sudden, it's noon. You hear bells ringing. It's called a worship of the Muslims that are there. And we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, these men jump up out of their chairs. I'm wondering, are we, are we getting shot at? What's going on here? And they head to the walls. Each one facing the walls. They're actually faced, their faces were against the walls. I've never heard prayer like that in my life. These men were praying, sweating drops of blood. I mean, they were, they were praying like I've never heard prayer before. And I asked the missionary, I said, what are they doing? He says, they're praying because it's noon. And the Muslims are being called to worship. They're praying for their families who are Muslims to come to Christ. I mean, they were beating their heads against the wall. They were crying, crying. Some of them crying hysterically. And this was no show. There was nobody to watch them. Many of those men, while I was teaching them, were receiving death threats because of their conversion to Islam. When they worshipped, it was an incredible sight to watch. They would come in here and they would, if they watched us worship, they said, what's wrong with you people? What, are you worshiping Jesus? Are you worshiping some dead God? 
Why are you so quiet? Shout to the Lord. Shout to the Lord for joy. Burst into jubilant song with music. I got to tell you, when Mary and Elizabeth were face to face, I can pretty much guarantee you they didn't sound like we sound. There was a bursting that was going out. See, Jeremiah refers to the truth of God's word in your heart as a burning hammer, a burning red hot iron. And you know, if there's something inside of you that's burning and red hot, it's got to come out. It's got to come out. If Christ in you is true, if you have been set apart for a purpose and a plan, I want you to imagine those men with their faces against the wall. I want you to imagine them receiving death threats and rejoicing in it. They, they rejoiced in it. I'm looking at the back door waiting for somebody to come in with a rifle. We were almost arrested twice and I was terrified. These guys, ah, oh, this happens all the time. And their faith is what pushes them. Psalm 98 verse 5. Make music to the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the sound of singing. These women in this church make their own instruments. They don't even have money for taxi cabs. Our church had to supply them money to get them from place to place. They made their own musical instruments. They would look at something like this, which I'm not, we should have stuff like this. Uh, they made this stuff. They had these handmade tambourines and handmade uh, flutes and uh, all kinds of instruments. And I got to tell you, it really didn't sound all that good. It sounded pretty bad. But I'll tell you what sounded great was their voices. Their musical instruments, they weren't that hot. But their voices, whew, like angels. Because you see, their faith cost them something. It's dangerous to be a Christian where they live. And so that's why Psalm 98.5 says, Make music to the Lord with the harp. You know, Handel spent the first part of his long career writing operas with grand themes, com complex music, elaborate sets and costumes. And he did so in English so that his English audience could understand. And he failed miserably at most of what he did. And so in his 50s, he stopped writing operas and went broke. So in order to eat, he broadened the definition of a classical song to appeal to current tastes and created a version of the or what we call today the oratorio. An oratorio, like an opera, was a dramatic musical but with unadorned performers up on the stage. They didn't have costumes. It was the vocal music with emphasis on choruses and not arias. The themes were usually biblical since most everyone then read the Bible. And they were sung in the native language so that the people sitting there could understand them. His best known oratorio was Messiah. Not the Messiah, simply called Messiah. But it did not work right away. 
People objected mainly on religious grounds. Hard to understand since its main themes were the coming of Christ. Christ. 